Lasso Lowdown, where we give you the lowdown on all things Ted Lasso. I am your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer, we got you. I'm here. Okay. All right. We are a couple days late recording. If you follow us on social media, facebook.com slash mangumtalks or at mangumtalks on Twitter or at www.mangumtalks.com, you'll know that I posted a few updates about why we relate. Spencer, do you want to say anything to the audience here before we get going? Yeah, I just wanted to thank everybody for your nice words. I saw them on social media and Lee filtered them for me as always because I don't know how to actually even use modern technology beyond the tin can and string, but I do really much appreciate um, the nice message you all sent. Um, my dog did pass late Friday. Um, we got to spend a few last hours with him, bringing him home, um, which was a lovely way to spend that kind of, um, well, have that last memory with him. But I do really much appreciate it. But nice words, nice support, and that cheered us up in the last few hours. So thank you all for that. Well, we're, I'm terribly sorry to hear that. I know that our fans are sorry to hear that too. Uh, they, I tell you, we got, we, you know, I come on this podcast and I do a lot of bitching about the 2%. I really do. I, I get really upset. Well, let's say, let's say the 3%. So it lines up with Katie Sackhoff talking about the Mandalorian fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I talk about the 3% Me. a lot and really upset. Uh, I'm really upset about that. But the vast, vast majority of our fans are awesome people who, uh, you know, really support us. And we're saying nothing but positive things, sending their, their positive vibes, loves, prayers, all that stuff that they have to give, want to give to you, buddy. They like you. You got a lot of people who care about you. So spite of my best efforts, really sorry. You went through that. And, um, you know, that's really all there is to say on that. I think it's time to jump into the podcast. We are on episode nine of Ted Lasso, right? We got three episodes left after this. 10, 11, 12. We are rapidly approaching the end of this season. I have, I think this one made more clear than some of the others about how the season is going to wrap up and end, but we'll get, we'll get into the details on that. I'm fairly certain about that too. All right. So here on the Lasso Lowdown, we give you the lowdown on all things Ted Lasso. We have our segments. We start with Biscuits with the Boss, where Spencer brings a sweet treat to the podcast. Then we have Tea Time with Lee, where I attempt to convince our American audience that tea, hot tea is not quite as bad as Ted thinks it is. And I have got a wonderful tea here today that was actually... Uh, Did the fan recommendation finally show? Yeah, it came in. I I have the the fan recommended tea, which we will talk about. Then we'll have recap with Spencer. Spencer, every week, heroically, bang, bang, shoot him up, knocks it out. The recap. He will lead the recap this week, talking us beat by beat through the episode. We'll do train wreck of the episode. That's an award we give for the character that's the biggest train wreck of the week. Then we will do uh, Life Lessons of Ted. Which a lot of fun. Uh, I think I got two two primary life lessons from this episode, which which should be enjoyable. Anything else you want to talk about, Spencer? Uh, I'm going to first talk about the very 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 odd uh, treat I brought with me for this episode. Okay, let's jump into that. Biscuits with the boss, Spencer. Take it away. Okay. Upon the recommendation of my five year old nephew, six year old nephew, uh, I'm going to try a classic childhood candy that I have realized I have never actually had before in my life. What? I am going to try an airhead. Oh, I have somehow never once had an airhead once before. And upon asking him what was his recommendation, he wanted me to pick a blue raspberry airhead. The most kid-friendly flavor, I'm sure, of airheads. Does blue raspberry exist? It's like It feels like it's a candy flavor that just only exists in kind of this category of candy. I don't think a blue raspberry is a real fruit. Uh, I will say this about the airhead. Got that bad sugar in it. Got that American bad sugar. As Ted oh, really I gotta love, the, gotta love the bad sugar. 
interested to hear what you think there. I do like an airhead. I've had many in my day. Um, it is more of a kid candy, but I heck, if I need a little, you know, for me, this a lot of these candies come back into play. And I know you've talked about this before in different podcasts. When I'm on like a road trip and I need a sugar rush to like get yeah. through the road trip, I'm getting tired. Um, yeah, I will do it. Uh, blue raspberry is just a manufactured flavor. Uh, uh, no, no such thing. Oh, I haven't tried it yet. It it looks exactly like the ice pack I had on myself earlier in terms of the pretty much consistency and color. It does look uh, like an ice pack. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give this a try, and uh, we'll see how this goes. I can't say the exact look is the most appetizing of things, but, you know, we'll find out. I see. All right. Well, the flavor is all sorts of blue raspberry, which is the most artificial chemical thing known to man. It probably tastes like the ice pack, too. Not dissimilar. Yeah. Did, have chewed on an ice pack before. It is kind of there. It's not terrible. It definitely is in the category of candy that I don't... I Maybe at one point enjoyed my childhood, but I'm not there anymore. But I'm not going to spit it out. I'm going to soldier on through this. Look at you. Uh, yeah, I think it's like in the category of get sugar in me now candy. Um, kind of like, I, you mean, you know, the fun dips where it's like, literally you're taking like a piece of sugar and dipping it in sugar and then eating it like that. Mm-hmm. It's like that. It's like, get sugar in me now. I can say I'm right, right there with you though. This would be a perfect driving candy just because bone conduction is the main thing that keeps you awake when you're driving or just straight caffeine or stimulants. And this thing I would be chewing on happily for quite a lo- for quite a long bit of time as I'm going down the road, keeping me awake in the early morning. Yeah, I may have to take over the recap. I don't know when you're going to be able to get that thing down. Spencer's chewing I'll get away. There. Podcast professional. All I'll right. make it through. Podcast professional. All right, so then we go into tea time with Lisa. The tea I have this week was recommended to us by a listener who interacts with us on our Facebook page. So for anybody who wants updates about what's going on with the Mango Talks podcast what's going on with us, or just wants to chat with me. Um, You will not chat with Spencer, but you will chat with me. (laughs) I try to respond to every fan message or post or comment or anything. I don't, I'm not always perfect, but I get, I get most of them. This person recommended a tea company called TWGT. Their tagline, the finest teas in the world. I believe it is a a Europe-based tea company. No. No, it's, it, it is Singapore. It is based oh. in Singapore. Uh, and that makes sense because when I ordered it, it took about maybe two weeks to get here. But I will say that it was completely worth it. The, the tea that was recommended to me is their tea number 6057, the Bellini. So I made some of that this morning with a little honey. I put, added a little honey to it. Survey says? It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, this um, hmm. it, it's, it's got a citrus kick to it. It's clearly a black tea, though. It's not like super, super caffeine. It's not going to knock you out, but it's it's got a great flavor and really good aromatics. It smells wonderful. Um, it's almost like a candle goes off in your house, but not like in an obnoxious way. Like it smells, it smells really good. And I ordered a bunch of other TWGT for the shipment. I got their 1857 black tea. I got another black tea, and then I got a summer tea. And I've tried all of them at this point, and they are all extremely good. This is a, a wonderful tea company. Not a sponsor of the podcast, but I would recommend that if you have an interest in tea, you want to branch out, TWGT. You can order their stuff online. Uh, I think there's like a $50 limit uh, minimum on any orders. So if you're going to order, you got to kind of commit. But 
Really good stuff, man. I got a wonderful cup of tea here this morning. Shout out to that listener. Thank you. Good call. I have ultimately decided to just swallow the damn thing so I get ready for the recap. Do not recommend that midway through chew. But, you know, we'll see if that explodes later in my belly. Gotta get Bridget in for the Heimlich. Uh, let's hope we can avoid that. But if you're ready... You seem okay. Although I, you're probably going to hit a sugar rush here in a minute, which will be a lot of fun to witness. <laughs> okay. If you're ready... All right. I'm let's ready. jump into the recap. Let's do it. Well, like us, at the beginning of the episode, Richmond is working like a well-oiled machine. Players are loving it. The crowd's loving it. Hell, even Roy. Roy, of all people, is eating this up. Admitting he thought it was nuts to change philosophy mid-season... But clearly, well, the results are clearly about But it's fucking great. Everyone is having a blast with Beard even noting that I haven't seen 22 dudes have this good a time on grass since I saw the Grateful Dead jamming with the Black Crows and Fish. I don't know if that actually happened at some point, but God, I wish I could have been there for what that must have been a mess. I mean, Beard says it was a mess. They had fun. I can only imagine. Whistle! Uh, Whistle! Uh, with that, uh, Roy calls the team in, says they've done a great job. Again, everything is going too well. Beard straight up faints from Roy just being this, you know, nice and excited Ooh. and complimentary to the team about this. Uh, the only problem, the mm. only problem mm. is a recurrent one throughout the episode. And that is Isaac refusing to, in any degree, in any manner, interact with Colin. Also, Danny has sock problems and Richard is a whore. But, you know, Isaac and Colin, main, main issue throughout the episode. Question to ask early, because eventually this is revealed to be, I would say, something of a red herring. Though, you know, you might default to the idea that he is being standoffish with Colin because he doesn't like the fact that Colin is now, well, he's, he's now realized that Colin is gay. Actually, turns out he's more just personally offended and coming to terms with the fact that Colin kept this from him from so many years. How do you feel about this kind of misleading aspect to the episode and also just Isaac's uh, response to realizing Colin's gay? They had to create some sort of tension in the episode. This was going to be Colin's coming out episode. They wanted it to be an entire episode, not a side quest on a different episode. And I respect that because it's worthy of and it's a plot point worthy of an entire episode. And they had to create some sort of tension in the writer's room. I'm sure they bounced around some ideas. This is what they went with, which is the misdirect that Isaac might be mad at Colin because or upset or offended or something that Colin's gay. But instead, he's upset that Colin didn't trust him enough to tell him that he was gay. I would say for me, that's the weakest part of this episode. I saw it coming a mile away. Um, it, it, it didn't surprise me how that played out. I thought it was predictable. I, I, this is my least favorite part of this episode. It is definitely my least favorite. I also don't appreciate in some ways that Isaac's never called out for kind of being a shit. I mean, sure, he's not discriminating against Boy, Colin. Well, you don't like Isaac. You take a shots at him last episode, too. I, I, he's a mixed bag as a, as a, as a team captain. Uh, I don't think he's all as effective as Roy was by comparison. Damn. But he's just outright being a dick to Colin all episode because, and the best explanation we ever get from him is, I was angry that you didn't trust me enough. It's like, Dude, get over yourself. This is his story. This is his event. This is his difficulty to talk about this. Support him. What the hell were you doing all episode? I mean, I would say that maybe this at least like maybe 30% falls into the bucket of the same dynamic we were talking about last episode, which is the team unity, team captain having some sort of like almost counselor type role in the lives of the players. It's something you you didn't really want to touch. You said 
not something you maybe would want to participate in if you had been if you were in this like career. Mm-hmm. I think maybe they're going for the same sort of dynamic, which is I am your team captain. Like I, I'm I'm the guy you should trust. I'm your leader. You should have told me this part about you. I fundamentally default to what I I, I say that because we're doing a podcast. I'm trying to talk it out, but I I default to what you are, which is like Colin has a right to tell whoever he wants or not whoever he wants. Like it's a hundred percent his choice when he comes out and who he comes out to and no one should ever be angry with him for telling or not telling that part of his story. I don't understand it at all. I'm I'm with you. I feel like that a lot of the Colin Isaac plot with this episode is more driven on affecting audience reaction and audience processing and setting up an audience moment rather than feeling very authentic or appropriate or realistic for the characters. Yeah. Which is why it's my least favorite part of the episode. However, there are some good parts, which we'll get to. Oh, unquestionably. Uh, up in Rebecca's office, she and Keely are spending friend time together. This is the best part of the episode. I love the time. I yeah, love <laughs> might be all that you get. I love yeah, the time when they're spending. Uh, yeah. Guess this might well be it. Heaven knows I try. Okay, the song is literally over. Are you done? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Uh, they are having a delightful <laughs> friend time together. Discussing text message philosophies, continuing to write down, uh, continuing to write somebody when you're not getting a response. Go ahead, um, try to get past this as fast as possible. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm, I'm just going to straight up highlight it, Lee. We clearly have different philosophies on this. Highlighted by how much you are willing to text me when I am not responding. Oh yeah, I'll send Spencer four or five texts in a row. I don't give a shit. I kind of here's the thing. If I was dealing with somebody who answered their text every couple hours. And when I when they pick up their phone, clearly feels the need to respond. I don't I don't send multiple texts to people, but for people who I know will treat their texts like emails, who will who, will, who yeah Yo. like you who will who will pick a time like okay six o'clock I'm going to sit down and look at my my text. Mm-hmm. I don't mind sending multiples in the same way I wouldn't mind sending somebody multiple emails on different subjects. Um, before they respond to the initial one. So I, I kind of have different philosophies for different people. I don't think it's like some big massive faux pas for everyone, but for some people it is. I can see how in a relationship though, like people don't want to do this. I, I have when it like ages ago when I was dating, I didn't want to send multiple texts to people I was dating without a response because I just didn't want to seem pathetic. And I think that's the dynamic they're going for here. Like I'm never like, I mean, you might think I'm pathetic, but I don't. I'm not concerned that no. Spencer will think I'm pathetic. I, I think Keely is concerned though about that power dynamic and how Jack will feel about her, and I think that's why this this dynamic's at play it, here. Yeah, it's not only just about I've got diarrhea of the thumbs. It's we're exiting a relationship. What what is this representing about me in this particular moment? How is this person perceiving as a result? I have now, a question for you though about the because I will send you multiple text messages without you responding. What is your reaction? Tell the people, be honest. If you get, let's say it's not from me, so it's not as weird. Let's say it's from like one of our friends. You get six different text messages. They're all kind of on different subjects and you pick your phone up. Are you irritated, overwhelmed, or are you just like, okay, I got to knock these out? I'm going to offer an example that happened recently. Okay. We've got a joint text thread between you, our mutual friend Doug, and myself. Yeah. Uh, There was an event recently of where I had to walk away with my phone for two hours. I came back and saw that there were 144 messages on just that text thread that I had not I had not seen during that period. <laughs> okay, all right, that might be excessive. I'll admit it. <laughs> and what I saw at the end of this was a message saying, "There's no fucking way Spencer's going to read this." 
To which my immediate response was, and you saw this, fuck y'all. And I went back and responded to every single you one did. of them. You read every I one. Started I started individually messaging responses so to them. funny. <laughs> but what, all right, so that hit your pride there. But normally, are you like, ugh, or are you like, oh, okay, all right, well, I got some cool stuff to look through? Uh, normally, uh, normally there's a sigh. Normally there's a sigh of, okay, <laughs> let's scroll back through this. That, that is my default reaction. I'm thinking about maybe switching to email with you. Let's just, let's just go back to analog. I might just start sending you emails. Like, especially if it's about podcast stuff, instead of a text, I'll just send you an email and you can get well, to it during the, work the, hours. Then, then I'm looking at it once a week, man. You know, it's, it's even, it's, it's not, it's not like it's any better in terms of meat response time. Oh, I don't care about the response time. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about sending it to you in a way that's the most accessible. Yeah. I remember that you did go back, you did go back and respond to every single one, which actually had the funniest, had the reaction of having me pick up my phone and see like 15 unanswered text messages from Spencer and go, Oh, like I, you actually get, you flip the script on me. It's a little, it's some of my own medicine. Look how these things happen. I actually wrote in my my messages, um, or my 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 notes here. Keely is talking about if you're allowed to write another text to an unanswered text. The great debate of our time. This might be the greatest issue facing the citizens of 2023. I, I will go. I will do an initial message. I will address another topic. But if you're not responded to either of those, I may do one last poke. But that's it. Nope, no, no more than two after the original one answered. I think if I, I just think it's different rules. I think if you're texting somebody super close to you, a buddy, best friend, parent, you know, sibling, something like that. I, I don't. I think there's no real rules to texting. But I think if you're dealing with somebody in a romantic situation, especially one where you're you're sort of on a break at arm's length, I can see how this is a bit of a faux pas, actually. I, mean, I very much agree. Typically, my response would be, if it's three unanswered, I call you. It's just like, okay, let's let's see if that works. Now, that doesn't Whoa, work. call. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Straight up. I was so stressed that you even said that word. Oh, my call. God. I know. A we're we're 100 call. years old. I'll still call A people. voice too. message. I know. Voicemails. Who checks voicemails anymore? Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. We've talked that out. Poor Keely. You know, I had some people, we have some people we're friends with, had some people online talk about this doesn't seem really in Keeley's wheelhouse. It didn't seem like Keeley to do this. Yeah. And, and my reaction Here's to that is that I'm, I think Keeley is about as low as we've ever seen her on this show. I think she's worried about her funding, worried about her job. I think she's had this massive leak, which is terribly, terribly traumatizing. I think she's been dumped by Roy now by Jack in consecutive seemingly months. It doesn't seem like it's been that that long. Mm-hmm. I think she's in a really low place. So I think you are getting some behavior she wouldn't normally engage in. And I think that's in keeping with the plot. Yeah, I, I think it's a 100% accurate statement to say this is not how season one Keeley would act. But she right. isn't season one Keeley. And I think this is an in-show, out-of-character moment. Yeah, I agree. Um, they... Uh, Rebecca commiserates. They share a hug just in time for Ted to walk in and note that when girl talk turns into girl hug, you know that either means something horrible's happened or absolutely nothing at all. Yeah, well said, Ted. He sympathizes to Keely. He sympathizes with Keely, feeling hurt bent, uh, dealing with Jack's uh, digital Irish goodbye, and offers biscuits and or cash to help ease the pain. Uh, Ted asks, though, whether he can uh, have a favor himself. He wants to be able to skip the press conference to attend a parent-teacher meeting, which I think is 
perhaps a little bit insightful into what his particular priorities are and perhaps the ultimate decision he's going to make at the end of the season with respect to said priorities. Keeley, seeing an opportunity, uh, volunteers Roy to fill the spot, as she has done previously. Uh, Ted offers a quick scatological uh, country song riffing off the subject of being heart-bent. My part-bent. How did you feel about his country song? Was your fart sent? I... It's not bad. I mean, it's you know, it's a little bit, it's a bit a little bit 1930s. I'm not sure that's current country, but yeah, sure, it works. Yeah, it, current country is just straight rock and roll pop. So no, I don't think that would fit in well, other than almost as a joke. Now uh, that you're gone, I wrote this song. It's all you left. Smell it, it, of your farts. Admittedly, point of an improv song is to work your audience. His audience seems at least somewhat engaged. Credit to Ted. It did uh, seem though. For all us Ted Rebecca people, it did seem such a, go- a good knowing moment between Rebecca and Ted, where Rebecca's like, "Okay, Ted, that's enough." Like, and they, they have this like repertoire where she used to be like, not really a not first off, she first didn't know what put to off, and then two felt like she had to engage in everything he does, and now she cause she seems like she can kind of pick what what she deals with with Ted, which is who, what he needs long term. If it's going to be Rebecca, if it's going to be Michelle. He needs somebody who appreciates the fact that he tells these jokes, but is also occasionally able to say, look, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. For that reason, I am done. Shark Tank it. Spoilers. It's going to be Michelle. Personal call. Could be Rebecca. It, it, it could be. And I know you guys are both hyping it after that one scene they share all episode. That's it. Ted's got like four minutes of screen time this entire episode. That's also telling. Yeah. Um, but they're just good friends. And as you said, she understands him now and she can almost just share a nod saying, and you're done, and we're moving on. Spencer, how's Rebecca look this episode? Oh, freaking great. Uh, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, too. Uh, fucking Rebe- great, he says. Uh, Rebecca then goes down, finds Roy, and asks him to cover the presser. He, I would be fair to say, is a less no. than enthused. Uh, eventually getting around, given that Keeley's there, he's trying to, you know, make her happy. A certain... Element of fake acceptance. Emphasis on fake. We'll see how well that goes later. Uh, Rebecca also, as said, is looking lovely in her lo- lovely in her outfit, and you know, as she walks away, everyone is staring. Uh, hey, here's damn. the thing on Rebecca. We, my wife and I went through this. Is like, so Rebecca is Roy's boss's boss. Yes. In essence, the owner, owner, CEO, head of the whole thing. And he's just willing to tell her basically to fuck off. Is this because of who Roy is? He self-sabotages, which we have seen him do. Or is this just because you're dealing with somebody with fuck you money? And when you employ someone with fuck you money, there are a little bit different rules. They're not as quite, they're not quite as eager to please you. Is it, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination. I think it's also a certain element of no one's ever set lines with Roy, really. He's kind of just stepped into being the team captain, and there's not really been much that's been enforced upon him about what his duties are, about what he has to do, about what the expectations. And so he's probably kind of just used to just, you know, saying, nah, I'm not going to do that and walking off just because no one's called him out on it. Ted's not the most confrontational, even as he used to be. So he probably lets Roy get get away with a fair measure of shit. And we haven't seen Rebecca directly interact with him that much, unlike a owner-coach kind of way. So he may not get fully that... No, Roy, I'm not going to let you walk away. I'm laying down the law. There's a wonderful shot of, it's from behind Roy, of when Roy says, fuck no. And Rebecca gives him the, 
I will fucking eat your lunch. Look, yeah. and Keely gives him a look like you done fucked up now. Like yeah. it is a wonderful shot. I took a picture of it. I'm going to post it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash talks. When I post about this episode that we're recording right now, um, it's just a, it, I, when I paused it, like it made the scene twice as funny to me, just seeing that, it, that shot of on your left, Rebecca being like, I'll fuck kill you. And then, and, but the Keely look is really funny because like, Keely knows Rebecca you. so well and knows you really don't want to do this to her. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, at West Ham, we Coach cut Nate to Shelley. Ted Lasso's sister show, Coach Nate, oh, which might as well be a spinoff show because it has no interaction with anybody else. Preach on it. Uh, Jade has stopped by to deliver lunch, uh, delivered under the requirement that she bring back the uh, restaurant manager, Derek, some swag. Nice. While uh, Nate goes to offer her as much as possible and they share a nice relationship moment, they are interrupted by Rupert, who slimes Ugh. his way into the room Ugh. and begins to try to flirt with Jade using a multi-pronged strategy. This guy knows how, this guy has a game plan. This is, we get to watch it in action here. Jade, what a beautiful name. Step one. I consider myself a bit of an amateur dialectologist. I feel like amateur dialectologist could have been in that book, The Game, that we referenced yeah. last last episode. It's like a trick to like get like because it seems like you're really hyper focused on the person and like oh, you're yeah, giving I'm them in. and you're and like who Look who says they're a dialectologist? Who's able to pick out where you're where you lived based on your your you know how you, how you speak like oh my gosh what a what a wonderful thing right but it, it, but you're right he, ultimately this is just slimy move he's not wrong he does correctly pick a peg curve in the south of poland uh he also comments on her smile he does that kind of mocking thing towards her boyfriend you know nate saying you know I this man wasn't so brilliant him. yeah hey, I, look at you out of his league that is so classic uh and then also t- takes the opportunity to tell nate nate don't screw this up as he walks away. What we're setting up here is Nate's exit plan. Rupert's going to flirt with Jade or do something even more untoward. Nate's going to see this and then Nate's going to leave the team. That's what I think they're telegraphing. How and do you then feel he'll about take that? over for Ted at Richmond as Ted leaves to go back to Kansas. This, this is my assumption. Either him or Roy after this episode, we'll see. I think Maybe everybody both. I think everybody sees the same tea leaves. And, you know, as sort of a wrestling angle, everybody on this podcast knows, listens to this podcast knows I'm a wrestling fan. In wrestling, like, you can't, like, when it, when, it, when you ask, the, here's, here's exactly how you can know what, how not to book a wrestling match. Sure. You ask fans, what's going to happen next? And if they go, oh, Roman Reigns is going to get some interference from Paul Heyman, bounce off the ropes, spear him, one, two, right. three, then that's the last thing you should do. Right. Yeah. Like, and this is what's worrying me about the show is that everyone sees the same thing coming, which is that Nate will be upset with Rupert. They've been setting that up for episodes now. And Nate will come back over to AFC Richmond coach and Nate and, and Ted will leave and go back to Kansas and they'll have some sort of spinoff about Nate running the show or, yeah. I mean, I think I, that's, and if they do that, I'm going to be pretty disappointed because again, we all see it coming. I think it's a reasonable bet at this point. Shows surprises the past. We'll find out. Uh, I do like that Jade responds to Rupert about the same way she responded to Nate the Great, the Wonder Kid, when he was trying to get a show off to her. She doesn't like it. Uh, it's, it's basically just stolid indifference. The only thing we get out of her in summary, which I loved, is he seems very wealthy. It's like, 
Wow, that is a remarkable uh, cut towards Rupert right there. And nice-like. Nice-like, yeah, true. So, nice summary by Jane. Uh, Nate still tries to, like, you know, bulk Rupert up a little bit, but by the end of this episode, I think he's finally starting to read Rupert for what he is. Uh, Meanwhile, Higgins goes to tell Rebecca that the presser has, I would say, reasonably, uh, gone the hell off the rails. Meh. Beard has just, and I feel this is uncharacteristic, uh, gone off script and kind of nuts for the sake of a series of guitarist and classic rock commentary. This, this felt like this was being done for a laugh. I felt more than accurate for Beard, but I'm curious your read. No, it works for me. I think that like the way that they were interacting with Beard indicated to me that they did not treat this as a normal press conference. They weren't going to print any of this stuff. Like This, this is fun for them. Yeah, so they were just having a good time, and Beard probably picked up on that that tone, and they just started bickering and going know. back and forth. And that's why, like, when Rebecca and Higgy Bottoms, Higgy Bottoms, shout out, like, think this is some sort of big deal, I think they're misreading the room. I don't think this is anything worthy of jumping in and cutting off and trying to stop. I think that he's just bantering back and forth with these folks that there's a zero percent chance any of this will get published except maybe in like a tweet of like an interesting fact about the the coaching staff is that beard thinks xyz about these guitarists i don't know i will note that beard seems to be taking this very seriously at the end when he is dragged physically out of the room i don't think that he's playing that up yeah i mean you do have to suspend disbelief a little bit in a comedy they got to write jokes at some point sure this felt like this was for the sake of comedy. Fitting for the character or not, maybe everybody's on the same point that it's a, it's a comic moment. Uh, the debate is on the subject of whether Joe Walsh or Jimmy Page are better guitarists. We will debate this on Sports Center Top 10 later. Uh, mm, the, what a tease. The, the Rebecca, for the record, offers the guy from Cream. I think she means Eric Clapton. We'll also talk about that later. Higgy Bottoms is so disappointed in her. <laughs> you, you so disappointed. There. I, again, oh. she... I mean, she was caught right there in the spotlights. She froze for a bit. At least she had an answer. Not Don't start answer, with me, answer. Leslie. I panicked. Uh, Rebecca is also just utterly pissed. Uh, and so goes off uh, to go confront Roy. Uh, she uh, actually Ooh. runs around to rightfully read Roy the Riot Act, one might say. She calls him out in the locker room and tells him Boy, to get ass into her office right away. Go on. I, this is something I love the British do. They get, instead of saying, hey, Spencer, they go, oi. 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 A lot of languages have it. it, it awesome. A lot of languages have it. It's something I've said in Spanish, it's going to be, oye. It's like, there, there, there is just the, I, your attention here right now. That's a dope way to get somebody's attention right there. Oi. Uh, Roy honestly seems not particularly offended by being called out. He at least expresses that he's mostly offended on the subject of, you know, no one stood up for his posterior grooming. Uh, saying that he will never forgive the other players for not standing up for him, which Isaac seems to take hard. Roy may be kidding. Isaac seems to take it very seriously. So this is a good example, in my opinion, of the writers writing a weak joke. This thing of like him saying, you know, my ass isn't hairy, but none of you spoke up. To me, that's not an inherently funny thing. If you read that on a page, you likely wouldn't laugh. Brett Goldstein sells it so well. He does. And this is an example of like what can happen in these shows, right? And it's if an actor 
is bought in in the show, believes in the writers, believes in the apparatus, they will try to sell lines that are weaker and will carry weaker moments. But sometimes you'll watch a show and actors will just sell the show out. They won't even try, right? I think mm-hmm. this is Brett Goldstein trying to carry the show in a moment of weak writing, to me. No, I agree. I mean, it's important to note, Brett Goldstein is one of the writers of the show as well, so he may, maybe even carrying forward his own line there. Uh, during the parent-teacher meeting, Ted, Mrs. Uh, Ledbetter, I think I wrote that down correct, and Michelle Miss Ledbetter go. are discussing Henry's what appear to be failing grades in science. Well, hold on. We, I we, have a question. We hear from this. Trent. I have a real that. question about this. Trent is giving the scuttlebutt to Colin and, and portraying that Henry is failing science. Now, That's what he says, if this is true and Henry is failing science, Ted's reaction during all of this is appalling. He's flippant. He's utterly flippant. flippant. He's joking. He is not taking it seriously at all. I have a, I think it's, I think it's a, it's not failing. He's not meeting expectations. So he's like a, he's like a B minus or something. Cause I can't imagine a situation where Henry's literally failing a class and Ted's like, Oh, hey, Miss Ledbetter, let me tell you some jokes. Like that doesn't track at all to me. I'm with you. It struck me as weird. I'm, 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 I think the only way I can explain it in moment is that you're right. That Trent is casting a broad stroke summary on the situation. Uh, Ted, as you said, they're discussing the subject of fraud feelings versus dissection. Ted is being like 9 out of 10 Ted corny throughout this conversation. He's even almost seemingly dialing it up just to make the make the teacher laugh. Talking about, you know, use helium to raise your grades. Uh, his favorite thing about Isaac Newton is Isaac Newton is he was so down to earth. Like you said, yeah, we better let uh, lead better go. This is Ted at his most corny. I feel like when you were growing up, if you had had a B in a class in high school, your parents might might colloquially say, Spencer's failing a class, right? Because like the expectation is that you get A's. If you got anything other than that, they would probably think, oh, he's he, something's going wrong here. That might be the same standard for Henry. That's what my head cannon's going to be. L- luckily, that conversation never came up for me. Uh, Colin, hey, meanwhile, <laughs> Colin, Colin, meanwhile, reveals Stop. to Trent with Go his... Notably, Rainbow Snoopy mu- Snoopy mug. That Rainbow Snoopy mug, Snoopy mug is now following around everywhere. Uh, that Isaac knows and now won't talk to Colin. Mm. Trent's response is, "Give him a minute. You shouldn't have to. Can't like that point there, but some people need it. Don't forget, you've known you were gay for twenty years." Trent's defaulting to the idea that Isaac's uncomfortable with this. Yes, I think it would have been a more interesting and realistic way to play this out. That's not where they go. But I like the line from Trent on the subject. I also like Colin's response that apparently he has known much longer than much longer than that, noting once I was out of my mom, I never looked back. What a joke. Funny, funny I line. do enjoy, you know, some people are complaining, as they have pretty much during the entire run of the show, that the show's a little preachy, it's a little unrealistic, it's a little, hey, let's just tell a let's just write an episode to tell a lesson instead of write an episode where a lesson is sort of inherently embedded. Nonetheless, despite that, which I have to acknowledge. Trent as gay Sherpa, like, I'm all fucking in. Every oh, time this Trent's fucking guy is on screen, I love it. I think he's dynamic. I think he's charismatic. I think every line he says, I want to, like, write in, like, really fancy cursive and put on my wall as, like, an inspirational quote. Like, he, everything he's doing <laughs> in the last, like, three or four episodes has been, like, emotive and has hit home for me really well. 
I will say, this episode in particular does at times feel a little bit like a very special episode of Ted Lasso. I don't think it hit the balance as well as some of the earlier episodes of this season otherwise. But I did, it, it didn't grate on me that much. Yeah, it didn't bother me at all. I, did, I didn't have that same reaction to it. Uh, in Rebecca's office, uh, Roy is there, and she rightfully gives Roy a right talking to for not doing the press conference when she told him to. Woo! Again, and I think this is in keeping with Roy's just not really had people just tell him to do his fucking job that often. He just kind of tries to play it off and laughs at, Jesus, I didn't know you were so serious. It's like, Roy, she might murder you in this room right now. What the hell are you doing? How bad uh, do you want Rebecca to talk to you like that? I think I would get a lot more done. I think I would. I think my life would be remarkably more productive if I had Rebecca yell at me like that. And I might enjoy it. Uh, Spencer, so, when someone texts you, you answer the fucking text. You will see me respond to text messages before you've even <laughs> sent them. I will preemptively respond to your text messages. The hey, how you doing check-in text from Spencer. I'd have to check to see if you had a concussion. <laughs> Effectively, yes. An emotional one. Uh, so Rebecca says, so you just didn't do it. Is that the plan for the rest of your life? You're just going to walk away from everything the second it isn't fun or easy. Okay. What do you want, Roy? What do you want? It's like, we're having... I, She's hitting more about the subject of Keeley than she's hitting the subject about what just happened. But she's trying to wrap the two together, and it lands with Roy. I know you're a big Rebecca fan. My question for you is, is this 100% appropriate where she goes in this conversation? Because it feels like she's going to Roy's relationship with Keeley. This is now the second time she's done this in his conver- her conversation with Roy. She's clearly trying to act as his boss in this moment. She's pulling rank. She's saying, when I tell you to do something, you do it because I'm the owner and you're an employee. Why dig into his personal life? I, I felt if we were balancing that, what degree is this him not following orders from the boss or not doing his job versus what degree is this him failing in his personal life and relationships and you know going forward with his own life goals? I think we're about 80% in favor of the latter and 20% for the former in terms of what the purpose of her conversation is. And that felt a little inappropriate from from her using the you know the voice from on top of Olympus boss you know perspective on this. It did me too. I didn't think it was consistent writing, um, or, or maybe it's just not Rebecca being consistent as a character. But either way, like if you're going to pull rank and you're going to say in this moment I am your boss, that's why when I ask you to do something, you do it. I don't think it's fair to then jump into his you know failed relationship with Keeley. That's not her purview. As we so often say, though, for scenes that didn't perfectly land with us, it did land for the character. Roy seems quite affected by it. It seems like he turns over a certain new leaf this episode. So I will give that credit. And I will also say their relationship has been a little bit wonky that she also is the best friend of his ex. And she has spoken to him in that particular fashion before. Like with the whole Jack Keeley thing about, you know, she's going off with someone that, you know, feels they're worthy of her. That one didn't prove correct, but, you know perhaps that's a certain way we can make this work that she has walked both sides of that line. Yeah. And I'm okay if she wants to approach Roy as Keely's friend, right? Cause yeah. I felt like she did that in the previous scene and I was totally, I was a cheerleader for it because she wasn't going to Roy as Roy's boss. She was going as Keely's friend and saying, Hey, you fuck this up. Cool with that. Uh, here, here, I think she's straddling two different lines. Anyway, I made the point. I mean, this, the second part of it hits that, too, is that, oh, bullshit, Roy. You want more than that. You're so convinced that you don't deserve anything good in your life that you'd rather eat a bowl of shit soup than complain about the portions. Get out of your own way, man, because this whole woe-is-me thing you've got going on is just fucking ponderous. That, again, is straight-up Roy ex-relationship kind of thing rather than boss, though. Right. Roy has no response, merely confirms that she has nothing else to add, 
She says that she doesn't, for now, and he heads out. At West Ham, Nate staying up late to prepare a strategy. And I do like this aspect of that Nate is really good at his job, and it's because he works for it. I do like they're emphasizing that in certain scenes throughout this. He does work hard. So the, the ending of last scene, I, I just like the small point that as Roy walked away, Rebecca nervously took a bite of food and looked like she was like exhaling. I just like that realist, that realism that like yeah, that she was, was having to build herself up to have this conversation, and it wasn't easy for her either. I just like that small point. But yes, Nate does work very hard at his job. I like that. One else thing I did like about that scene, and I will say even if it didn't fit perfectly how it wanted, I want more scenes of Rebecca being an owner. I want more scenes of her using of speaking with a, from a professional role. I want more scenes of her being the boss. We haven't gotten many of those since like season one, and so even a touch of her just ordering Roy to do his job, I appreciate that because I've always wanted more aspect of that. That to be more of an aspect of her character. Agreed. Uh West Ham's preparing strategy. Rupert walks in to do that kind of trade little cocky statements better there to kick ass the next day kind of thing the way they do. And also hey, can, to pill- mm-hmm. can, I, can I write a high school English paper now? Go on. Okay, so in my high school English paper where I'm writing about in my honors junior year English paper, um, Rupert comes in and takes a bite of the Taste of Athens baklava without asking Nate. He just mm-hmm. grabs it and takes a bite. I'd what like to does call this, this represent? I'd like to call this a little bit of foreshadowing, sir. Uh, is he, <laughs> he is eating his lunch, as it were. Uh, yes. There, there it is. is. Yes. Certain implication here. <laughs> Suggestive, perhaps. <laughs> Thank you. I want to go into that. Well well, well said. Uh, they, then also, of course, we talk about uh, Kate. Uh, sorry, Jade. Uh, oh. Kate. oh, yes. Uh, the next day... Well, and then, you know, exits having pilfered the baklava without asking. Uh, the next day, Nate is walking to the pitch and throws out his typical uh, Wonder Kid barbs at the other team. Well, I hope they're kidnapped forever and bring 11 body bags. Yeah, bubbles are blowing in the air. Still, I still can't get over that being their theme. It's, it's so weird, but, you know, I'm j- glad everybody clearly enjoys it. Sure. Uh, and he gets invited by Rupert to a guy's night, which Nate seems very excited about. Well, sure. For now. Uh, Richmond, likewise, is getting ready for the game with the announcers debating whether their red-hot or something even more hot winning streak will continue, uh, which I, 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 I don't particularly like the announcer banter that much, but I love the, the other announcers rejoinder because I would have been saying this pretty much all season about, thank you for correcting me, Chris, the next time, uh, and next time you f- uh, feel free to wait until we're after we're off the air. It's like, I would have been saying that all season with, with his, Chris's really weird comebacks. Yeah, I'm going to start saying that to you on the podcast. Thank, thanks for correcting me, Spencer. Can we do that all over next time? Uh, can I do Uncle Lee to the kids real quick? Please. Um, yeah, and I don't. I don't even really care. Like if I sound like like I know it all or whatever, because I just feel like this is just this is just right. If you are a boss of an organization, let's say you're an owner or a manager or what the fuck ever, if you want to connect with one of your employees, the the wrong way to do that is twofold and rupert does both of these one is to ask them out over alcohol that is just first off you don't you often don't know if people in your organization presumptuous you don't you don't know if that will put them in an uncomfortable situation after you start drinking things often get said that are inappropriate it it devolves into inappropriate things it's just not the right avenue for having a work discussion too is to make the 
relationship, make make the excursion, the event gender-based. Let's have mm-hmm. a guy's night. Let's go have a girl's night. Why? Because you're excluding. When you say to Nate, let's go have a guy's night, you're now inherently excluding every woman in the organization. If there's any woman in here, earshot, or hear, ooh, some woman who hears Nate tell that story about, oh, I'm going out with Rupert. He said, we're having a guy's night. They'll feel excluded. They'll feel like they're not allowed to be in on the guy's night. And it creates mm-hmm. resentment and um, continues to establish that you know the only way to be in in an organization run by men is to be a man and to do man things, i.e. go have drinks, go to golf courses, go to what the fuck ever, right? Like, so both of those things I think are just really not the right way to run an organization. Again, I know I'm breaking new ground saying Rupert fuck something up, but I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> no, very fair, very well said. Uh, in terms of things that aren't fucking up right now, uh, May's pub is kicking ass. Hell yeah. They, to the point they've actually even run out of pint glasses in the rush, though they apparently still have flutes available, which our fan trio seems to think improves the experience. Uh, up in the owner's box, uh, there are a series of texting shenanigans with Higgins oddly texting Rebecca, which I don't think is really explained what that is. Uh, he didn't notice that she was there, so he was just texting her before, as she sat down. Seat, seat, seat away from him, but sure, yeah, okay. Uh, meanwhile, let Keeley's- me tell you something, Spencer. Every single thing Higgins does is fucking fire. Okay, he's awesome. I don't need to hear any Higgins, Higgins can't criticism. do wrong in your book. Hail to the no. He's electric. Everything Higgins does, I'm locked in on the screen. I thought I th- I just think the actor sells it so well. I, I think about like two episodes ago where he dro- he his only thing in the whole episode was to drop tea on himself. And to me, it was the highlight of the episode because he's just so fucking funny. I think the guy kills it. Higgins is an easy sell for you, sir, I gotta say. Absolutely. Uh, meanwhile, Keely finally hears back from Jack to confirm Ugh. that uh, she's in Argentina for the next couple months. Yeah, I, didn't, so, I did not call this one correctly, folks. Uh, yeah, so officially-ish, they are now broken up. So Keely invites the two to finally voice their previously unspoken, withheld dislikes about Jack. And we get something from Higgins. Go on, I'm sure it made you happy. What did Higgins say? I mean, come on with the strong handshake. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, we we get it, you're friendly. Good riddance. Hey, look, I I live for this fucking moment. I know I'm petty. I know I sound like an asshole. But when my friend is dating somebody that I don't like, now, a lot of times I do like, the people my friends date. I like mm-hmm. your girlfriend. I like some of the people we've talked about on this podcast, that, who they're dating or who they're friends with. I genuinely do, right? But sometimes I don't. And when when they break up and then the friend opens the forum and goes, so, okay, give it to your me. Mind. I'm like, oh, this made my year. Yes, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit rude when you pulled out like the massively like post-it labeled binder of just every single you know complaint for the last twelve hey. years. I thought that was a little excessive, but you know it happens. Here's journal one, journal two, <laughs> journal three. <laughs> On the first day, she chewed far too loudly. Oh, the best. Two hours later, <laughs> uh, Ted uh, in the locker room. Ted jokes about playing Brighton, Hoy, and Albion, which he didn't know they were playing a law firm. I thought that was a funny little joke. It's a good joke. Uh, and Isaac, after taking pains to remove his hand from being anywhere near Collins, again, God, you're going way too far with this, dude. Show you're going way too far with this. Yeah, I uh, agree. He sounds the team uh, sounds the team off on Richmond on Richmond on C ABC. I've actually heard that kind of sound off before. That was kind of cool. I like it. Uh, however, Richmond aren't playing too well this game, though, driven by lackluster and error-ridden performances from what we see primarily from Isaac and Collins. 
Uh, that one asshole fan who's been there all season, maybe even longer, is uh, up in the stands offering endless streams of bile concerning their play. He's on tilt, that guy. He's overserved. Uh, Van- <laughs> overserved is one way of putting that. Uh, Van Dam weirdly misnamed by Jamie as Zorro again. What I don't get that line at all. That you've been calling yourself Van Dam all season, and they feel the need to say actually it's Van Dam to Jamie, who knows this on the pitch. Did they write these out of order or something? So that would have been earlier. No, no, I love. I, I thought this was really a great detail because I think that it's Jamie forgetting that the guy switched his name. This is something I would do all the time. I would, it's I would six episodes now. It's been months. Yeah, but I mean, it, he he doesn't interact with Zorro. I mean, Van Dam all that often, mm. and I think that it's it just illustrates that Jamie's still trying to get it right. Right when he gets sure. corrected about something like this, he takes he acknowledges it, it and he smiles. Yeah, he didn't say "fuck you." I'll call you what I want to call you, which is what he would have done two seasons ago. He he's trying to be the captain, right? Like he's not the captain, but he's trying to be like a leader on the team. And so I, I just like that little moment where he's like, "Oh it, yeah, shit, I forgot my bad." He may be after this season if uh, my expected punishment for Isaac for going in the stands proves accurate. We'll find out. This episode, you mean? This episode, yeah. Yes. I fucking hope so, man. Wait, Jamie is captain. Give it to me, Jamie. Well, Van Dam is doing great, and he's keeping the team in the game. Um, but unfortunately, after another error, seemingly by Colin, Brighton drives in and goes up 1 0. Isaac one nil. fully. 1 0, sorry. Isaac, fully on tilt, starts utterly uncharacteristically on the pitch, just ripping into Colin. Had to be, like, restrained by teammates ripping into Colin. Uh, Sam has to insert himself right in the middle to try to defuse things, but Isaac is still very clearly, visibly out of control. Yeah. Team starts to get things together a bit by the end of the half, driving in, some good plays, some good passing, but Brighton smothers it, and they go into the locker room 1-0. Hey, the fat drunk fan uses the phrase knob stick at one point. Is that penis? Knob yeah. stick? Yeah. No, knob can just be penis. Stick is just doubling down. Wow, man. I'm learning all kinds of British things. Knob uh, stick. British Got curse it. words are fun. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, unfortunately, the one fan is still laying into them with the team trying to ignore him as best as they can until he drops... What the show refers to as the other F word, a less polite term for gay people or perfectly reasonable ter- or reasonable of archaic term for a bundle of sticks. Uh, Isaac decides that he would rather be playing for the Indiana Pacers and charges the stands to confront and or attack that fan. Or on that reference in the Sports Center Top 10. Hey, two things about the way they did the writing here. I want to see if you approve of it. One, they did not actually say the other F word on the screen. They went and then they, they cut it out, right? Two. The clear implication is that Isaac runs into the stands to fight this guy, but there no punches were thrown. They actually don't show violence on the screen. Are you okay with both of those decisions from a writing standpoint? Uh, only if there are repercussions for Isaac. He clearly is going to have to face punishment for that. He did still commit assault. If he didn't commit battery in terms of approaching the guy very aggressively in that particular form. The show often doesn't do repercussions from character actions. If they don't this this time for this, I'm kind of out because this is too big a deal for not that not to be punished. Um, in terms of them not saying the word, I'm fine with that. It, they got the message across just fine. It's a very loaded phrase in this day and age. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine for them making that decision. Yeah, I, I, uh, I the the other f word has reached a point for me, and uh, you know, what, I mean, I'm just if people want to call me like a snowflake or something that's fucking fine i don't care i'm just telling you my fucking opinion it's reached almost a level of like i just can't hear i just can't hear it like i cringe like i struggle with old hip-hop music like old 
like like Biggie and Tupac and stuff like some of that stuff. Uh, um, there's there's some other bands too that 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 would use that phrase in the '90s when they in hip hop music. I have some people I know who will still use the word occasionally. Like I just, I, it's not a good word for me. I, I would, I would be a very happy boy if I never heard that word again. I, I will say money for nothing is still a banging song, but it is still a little awkward when that word appears midway through it. Love that song. actually. Tupac was the worst about it. He, he used that for word all the fucking time. Uh, Isaac, as you said, decides to go into the stands right there to confront Ooh. that player. As you said, he more just appears to be kind of like, does he almost like grab his shirt or something? I don't think he does anything more than that. He certainly is yelling at him right in the face. I mean, I took it as we were supposed to. Th- we were supposed to get the implication that he went in to swing at the guy, but they just didn't want to show violence on the screen in Ted Lasso. Yeah, that's that's how I took this. Very. I, I now understand your point. Yes, I understand. Uh, everyone is speechless at this. Roy, of all people, has to step in to try to be the voice of reason as the announcers call out what is happening to the world. Uh, it's too late for Isaac, though. He's obviously crossed every line that exists in the sport. He's given yep. a red card. He's thrown out of the game immediately and likely realistically. I didn't look this up, but if this was any other sport, he'd be kicked out for games after this, possibly even the rest of the season. Well, we can talk about what would happen in the NBA in such a situation in the sports that are top ten. Uh, perhaps the malice at the palace when yeah, we get we there. Yeah, got, we got that coming. That's I got notes tease. on that, too. We'll talk about that. Uh, probably going to be severely fine, too. This is a big fucking deal. I Isaac would say, this. yeah, it's absolutely uh, awful. Isaac is corralled, the fan is tossed, and the team finally makes it to the locker room. Uh, everyone there continues to be speechless about Isaac's behavior and not knowing how to process or respond to it, with Ted finally asking, all right, uh, no one's going to say nothing? Sure, no, I'll kick it off. Isaac, what the hell happened? Reasonable starting question. Yeah, Isaac said one of the fans said some ignorant shit. And um, Sam explains he heard the word. It was the other F word. Uh, Isaac thread all this is so emotional that he can barely even sit still and is almost just barely even able to get the words out with respect to this. Room confirms what's going on, what he means. Higgins, trying to have a certain moment of levity, apologizes for his dad. And he's dead <laughs> wonderful that, joke, Higgy Bottoms. Crushing it. It was a wonderful joke. <laughs> wasn't the best time. Perfect time. wasn't ready for it. Absolutely perfect time. That was awesome. Great, great job, Higgy. Uh, Ted focuses in that, you know, the word's unacceptable. That wasn't right. You know, completely unjustified by that fan. But you have to show more control than that. You can't but, do that. But man, your reaction ain't going to be taught by any Tibetan monasteries anytime soon. Room agrees. I mean, the room's like, Isaac, you just hurt the team here. We're down a man. There's going to be repercussions from this. None of that was okay. That was a Richmond fan you confronted too, dude. Sam even points out they've heard this shit before. He didn't. Yeah. I mean, I and you know, hearing it before doesn't make what the fan said right. I don't think that's what anybody in the room is going for. But I think what they are going for is like, why is why, it different why this are time? You on tilt right now? Yeah, we've heard this all the time. Like, why is this something that you're exploding about now? It's part of our job to kind of weather this shit. And play. Sam's lamented this is that if he does anything wrong, he's kicked out of the country. It's something he lives under all the damn time. Isaac, what's going on here? Eh, it's poop, eh? It's poop, eh? And we just ignore the poop, eh? Good callback for about three, four episodes ago. We ignore the poop, eh? Thanks, Jamie. Isaac yells, I don't want to fucking ignore it. What if one of us is gay, huh? We shouldn't have to deal with this shit. Making it very clear to the audience that Isaac is in Colin's camp. It's a... Certain kind of like preaching, speaking to the audience kind of moment here for a few ways, but also just that this isn't okay regardless of the context. Yep. 
and Isaac storms out of the room. And that's, yeah, that is the moment where I went, okay, well, my, my earlier supposition was correct that he's supporting Colin here, but it is a little predictable. Uh, Roy decides to go after him. Isaac is tearing, barely able to keep it together, asks Roy to leave as he knows he fucked up and doesn't need to be yelled at about it right now. Roy does the most effective thing he humanly possibly can and doesn't say a word and just calmly sits down next to him. Best thing he can do in that moment. Good on you, Roy. Agreed. Uh, the team debate what the hell just happened, landing on that, I think this is a reasonable deduction from the, fan, from the, yeah. from the team. Isaac's gay. Okay. Uh, their response is that, they, based on his reaction, they don't treat it as surprising, but they also just don't treat it as a big deal. It's like, okay, we're here for him. We will support him. Ted moves to focus the team on the second half, but Colin, seeing an opportunity, interrupts to confirm that it isn't Isaac who is gay. Cut, hard cut there, important moment to cut in, to Roy telling Isaac, I don't know what happened out there, but I do know whatever it was isn't what you're really angry about, is it? Great Trust point. You, get, you got to go deal with that, or you're going to fuck up whatever it is you actually do care about. Banger of a line. One of the best lines of the entire episode. Great advice from Roy right here. Seems to resonate very well with Isaac. But Will, because they're in Will's territory. They, they entered Will's house for this. Of course, Yeah, Will's come there. on, guys. You're in, you're in his bedroom. Uh, Will continues. He's right, you know. The little things that we're mad about are about, like snowflakes on a mountain. If we wait too long, they're just, and we're just one sneeze away from an avalanche that will kill us all. Both Roy and Isaac really appreciate that distillation, really, and thank, thank Will for it. Though they cut off Will's efforts to further participate in the conversation. Colin... Coming out off screen. I want to ask you about that. How do you feel about them doing the coming out moment, telling his team off screen? First, I didn't like it. And then I thought maybe what they were they were saying is like a sort of on the nose explanation that such a such a moment is kind of like between them. Like it's a a really sensitive moment that like shouldn't be exploited, et cetera, et cetera. So I think maybe what they were going for here is they didn't want to have the big Ellen, you know, like come out moment and everybody cheer, because I think we're kind of past that as a society that that's like something worthy of a cultural hit the brakes. Oh my God, I can't believe this happened type thing. Like that's not where we're at. So I think, I think, I think it made sense after I thought about it a little bit. My, my initial reaction was though, it's just on a very basic level, man, I wish I'd seen that. I wanted to see that reaction. We're seeing everything else. It felt a little bit weird not to get that particularly since, as you said, we get the cheer moment though. We get everybody else's reaction. We get everybody else saying it's okay. We get to see Colin kicking ass later. We get all of that, which is still, you know, the cultural celebration kind of moment. But we don't get the most dramatic moment for the character in his story, right? But I, I just think they don't—they don't. We don't need to see that moment anymore. I guess maybe is the is what they're trying to say. Okay. Uh, the general tenor from the team, though, is, yeah, we cool. Who cares? That's pretty much the default the, the default response. Mm. Danny even offers a big whoop. Mm. I get a hundred percent where they're coming from. It mm. comes from a good place. Ted brings it around to a different way of expressing the same kind of sentiment, though. No, uh, it's it's a di- it's not the same sentiment. We're, we're, we we disagree there. Uh, okay. I, I think that it's dangerous to say I don't I don't care. It's not a big deal. Well, and that's what Ted emphasized. Their hearts in the right place. They're just not expressing. They're not expressing it accurately. They're even necessarily expressing what they would want to really say right here. 
because uh, Ted focuses them in on through what is just a rambling, not particularly clear Ted, La- almost parody of a Ted Lasso speech on the subject of he had a friend who was a Denver Broncos fan and he regrets not caring more about, not supporting more about, and just saying he didn't care about the fact that, you know, he supported a rival team in a way that wasn't acceptable to everybody else around them. Um, it's a, it's a long speech. Uh, the team is thoroughly confused by it. It goes on for like a solid I don't half think of Ted's screen time. We, we, we differ so much like, on this speech. We couldn't people be more People are different. lost. They're wandering out of the room in confusion. There's just dogs and cats getting married. No one knows what's going on. Uh, uh, they focus on the fact that Ted just compared being gay to being a Denver Broncos fan, to which Ted says, you know, you know what, I did, I regret that, sorry about that. They then hammer on the fact that I don't even know who the Denver Broncos are. Ted points, you know, that's a very good question. Uh, it's an American football reference, an absolute fumble in this situation. I apologize. Double apology after a Ted Lasso speech. Never seen that before. Tell me, sir, tell me why you loved what Ted is acknowledging is the worst speech he's ever given on the show. So, we just couldn't differ Focusing more. Focusing on the first half, we'll get to the better half. We couldn't half differ more second. on just about anything you said. So first off, I don't think when you say, when somebody says I'm gay or I'm X, which is, makes me different than we're whatever. We're going to focus on the second half of the speech here in a no, second. No, we're talking I, about the Denver Broncos. Now, if you want me to explain the, the second half, I'll get there and then we can talk about it. Well, no. I mean, you said something that I, I just want to respond to. Like oh, sure. You said their heart's in the right place. And I'm not sure saying... I don't care. I don't, let's not talk about your difference is heart in the right place. I I don't think that, I think that that can come from a place of, I don't want to deal with this uncomfortableness, which is you being different. I don't think that's where the team's coming from though. Okay. Well, that's your opinion. But I, I think that that often gets masked with people saying like, it's the old Stephen Colbert joke. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Therefore I don't want to talk about color. Like that's, that's actually a negative thing. And I think that sometimes when people go, okay, dude, big whoop, I don't care. Let's not talk about it. It masquerades as being supportive, but it's actually not supportive at all. Like it's actually not wanting to address somebody's difference, not willing to get into the weeds and talk about it with them and like acknowledge their lived experience and how hard that particular situation is. So I think Ted calling that out and going with this, you know, going to the speech was a wonderful thing. I also think like, I, my personal opinion, which you you know this already, is that this whole like apology, I apologize, I didn't mean to compare it to football or whatever, was an attempt at a joke in a in a serious moment because like you can you can compare situations without comparing the fundamental thing you're talking about. Like you can say, hey, you being gay, like. There is there is a lesson in this coming out that you're doing right now here in the locker room that is the same lesson that is inherently in this completely different situation over here. Like there can be lessons in different situations without you comparing the fundamental thing. So I didn't think the apology was necessary at all. I thought it was just an attempt at a joke. I thought this was a, a wonderful moment by Ted to call this out and important for all of us to realize like ignoring our differences is not often the way to be supportive of people who are dealing with something like that's not, that's not the best reaction. If you're trying to be supportive, I agree with you half. I agree with you that that is exactly the message the show is trying to convey from Ted, not just the players. I don't think at all the players were trying to say, I don't care or support you or want to engage in this at all. I don't think it, that would, that would, that would not be accurate for anything we've seen to this team before. I think that is an important message to the audience, almost more that it's an important message to the team. 
Uh, also, uh, but in terms of Ted's speech, the guy goes on a non-sequitur where he talks about eating a seven-layer dip and doing $9,000 damage to a toilet. This is not all on script. He is rambling throughout all of this. Uh, yeah, I just didn't see it that way. I thought it, I thought he was talking about the the. I mean, it's a it's a it, it's an odd. I mean, it's it's Ted. He's being Ted, but like there are consequences to people dealing with their lived experiences alone and not having someone to travel the journey with them. And that he's talking about those consequences. I think it's a, a poignant moment. I think it's. An, I, I think where he ends, which I'm now finally getting to, is effective. Well, I'm sorry, but we disagreed. I had, to, I, had to, I, I needed, to, I wanted to share it. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I acknowledge our disagreement. Uh, Ted, having, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna express it this way. Ted, having thoroughly lost the room in the moment, bring things, brings things back to where what they need for, to be. Is it diff for Bronco? That's my favorite line by Jamie the whole a full fucking episode. He says, he's "What the so fuck? Lost. What the he's fuck so lost. is a Denver Bronco? What the no, no, no. I'm sorry. He says, "What the fuck are Denver Broncos?" Which the phrasing yeah. of that just laid me out. Very funny. Ted focuses them. Colin, the point is, we don't not care. We care very much. We care about who you are and what you've been through. Yeah, but hey, from now on, you don't have to go through it all by yourself. All right, we want to hear that. You got us, mate. We got you. That's great. That is out of the park. That is the right message to convey. I think he's effectively more like crystallizing how the team actually feels rather than how they're expressing. Like you're saying, though, it's an important distinction for the audience in particular in terms of what actually needs to be the message to convey and actually be the message to support rather than just doing a kind of version of don't ask, don't tell associated with this. With you there. Uh, Ted then focused the team, though, on the second half they have to play. And even though they are man down, and they aren't going to change a thing, which I don't know if that makes particular sense with the strategy they've now inflicted, which seems really reliant on all the players being there to have that constant motion, but they're confident they can make this work. Uh, Sam, having taken the captain mantle from Isaac in what is one of the funnier silent exchanges in the entire history of the show, of where Sam and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jamie, Jamie kind of share a moment debating who's going to you know pick up the captain's mantle, and Jamie's like, oh, you know, I'll take it. Sam just flips him the finger. I was laughing for that. Who gets your vote? Who who get when I with Isaac down? Who who's getting Spencer's vote for captain? I think it's an interesting kind of thing. Sam, I think, expresses the kind of philosophy and personality of the team better than almost anybody. He is the ray of sunshine. He's the ray of hope. He's the kind of heart bringing the team together. But strategically, practically, Jamie seems to better understand and have integrated their strategy for play better than anybody else he's the one that's crystallized it in terms of making it work so i think i'm kind of leaning towards jamie for actual tactical play but i can understand a certain degree of sam for just you know emotional philosophy how do you feel though i would have picked jamie because he's the second he's either the best player or the second best player on the team i mean isaac is a really good defender so i don't, I don't know how that shakes out uh and i just think that um he's the heart and soul of the team right now i, I like sam a lot uh but i, I think it, it should be jamie based on the way they're playing and the way that Jamie has come around as a leader in the locker room. Jamie did drop this line too, which I really loved. Simple line, but I just really enjoyed it, where he, he looked at Colin and he said, hey, yeah, you hear that? Reinforcing what Ted said. You hear yeah. that? You got us, mate. We got you. Which I mm-hmm. love the we got you, which is it's not just, hey, you're you're gay, so therefore you're some sort of weakling we, that, like, we have needs, to support you. that needs your support. It's like, no, like you, you can, you also support us and we appreciate that. And it's a symbiotic relationship, which probably makes Colin feel a 
more of a part of than just, hey, man, we're going to be here from you in all your struggles. Right? Yes. Uh, it's a good call. It's, good. it's, a, it's a good moment. Uh, I Sam gets through, you know, the process of being captain. You know, he's invited to count them off. He doesn't know what to say. He just notes that he's honored and that he loves them all so much. One, two, it's, three. I love you all so, I love you all, you guys so very much. It's like, please. Yeah, that's perfect. Wonderful. Well done. Again, I, I'm with you that Jamie, I think, is the, that actually the better choice for Captain, but it's still a lovely moment for Sam and for the team to focus in on that love and support they have for each other. Agreed. Team run back to the pitch. Trinesse, Colin, was this better or worse than you imagined? Colin, I think this is how I would answer that question, says second best. Uh, way it could have gone, I think best would have been the entire team confess that they're gay too, and we get on, we uh, we get to be on the cover of Oprah's magazine. Again, there's always a better scenario. It's good to think about it in your mind. Didn't like that joke. No, because they, they get they go, they go they go on the whole season with this subplot without making the effeminate man gay joke. They haven't mm-hmm. done it one time. I love that they haven't done it, and then they right at the goal line they decide I'm going to make the effeminate gay man joke. Oh man, he likes Oprah. And it fits in. With people the, like Oprah. Uh, I, I, it's a it's a caricature. It's a stereotype of a gay man in America or a gay man in in Western society. I just didn't love it. Okay. They didn't need to go there. It's cheap. And West Ham, the game is won, and the atmosphere between the employees is apparently now just sunshine and daisies, despite what we saw at the start of the season. Because Roger takes the moment to invite Nate out for a drink. This didn't work for me. I think this is just a weird tunnel inconsistency with the coach Nate plotline of where. First two episodes, he's a dick to everybody around him. The players, coaching staff, random support staff at the stadium, everybody. Now we haven't seen any of that again, and he's getting invited out to drinks with the, with, 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 with the uh, various employees. I, I don't think they've made that transition work if they're trying to view this so that he's just been improving all time. Uh, how do you feel about that? So... The, the character, Nick Muhammad, actually tweeted about this and talked about it. He is a, he agrees that at the end of this episode, episode nine, Nate has not been redeemed yet. So that tells me that there's more coming. Like he agreed that like just simply getting in a relationship with, with Jade is not redemption for the character. I enjoyed that the, he was willing to speak on that because I think there's been a lot of argument in the fandom about that. I agree with mm-hmm. you, man. I, I don't know why he would be invited out based on what we've seen. I guess that maybe they're in, indicating some sort of progress off screen. But in the same way that Spencer does not appreciate things being in the Star Wars saga being explained in books <laughs> off no screen. Books. He, he doesn't like when a book later explains what we saw in a movie, which is totally fair point. I, I joke with him about it. But it's totally fair point. I also mm-hmm. don't like that the explanation for what we're seeing on screen is an assumption about what we didn't see off screen. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I would have appreciated seeing much more of his character growth, at least some of his character growth driven for how he's interacting with other people in the team as a coach, given that's been the key aspect of his toxic, you know, interactions with other people rather than purely just through his relationship. We've got time to see more of that, but we're not, not much time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nate appreciates Roger's offer, but uh, he notes that he has to refuse because he has plans with Rupert for the evening. Back at Richmond, the power of, um, Inspired by, you know, his team's acceptance of him and being out in the world, um, Colin has, I guess we can say, just the best game that he's ever Ooh, played. Two assists. That's big. Midfielder, uh, right? So two two would be huge. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, team, the team is able to come back and win 2-1. Everyone's excited. 
it's a great moment for Colin after all that he's been through and after you know, the struggles of the team this season. It's even more remarkable they were able to do this a man down with nine players. Uh, com- commentators afterwards, though, are mostly focused on Isaac because, yeah, they'd be mostly focused on Isaac. Uh, as are the fans, for that matter, is everyone's still trying to wonder what the hell happened, could anything justify it, and where things will go from here. I'm definitely with you on the last point. I'm curious to see where the show go- uh, goes in terms of wrapping that up. Uh, at Rupert's guys' night, though, Nate quickly mm. realizes that Rupert is a serial philanderer and nothing good can ever come from spending time with him in private. Agreed. As he has two girls there with him as an intending to have an evening focused on, well, them and him and all those things. Uh, in what is, I suppose, a bit of a decent character-growing moment that isn't entirely centered on Jade, uh, he basically just tells Rupert that, uh, sorry, um, I need to leave. Uh, long story, but I wanted to come and tell you in person that I can't be here. And he heads out. What do you make of Rupert's kind of... He gives just Nate a stare afterwards before he walks away. What do you think was going through Rupert's mind when Nate told him that? So men who are serial philanderers, as you put it, which is a great term for Rupert, often really look down on men who want to be monogamous. Who don't. and And they will condescend to them. They will call them childish insults. And I think that this is what... This was in that vein where Rupert was giving him a look like, like you fucking pansy or, you know, fill in whatever the insult is, the inappropriate insult is. That's probably what he was thinking about Nate and, and probably in his twisted mind thinks less of Nate now that he sees that Nate is not willing to cheat on his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a perfect accurate read. Uh, at Richmond, uh, Trent compliments Ted on that, what is now eight wins in a row. Woo! Big fucking deal. You know I don't care about wins and losses, Trent. Uh, to which everyone in the room just rolls their eyes at this point. As Ted admits that, eh, you know, the truth is I couldn't be happier if my arm feet were covered in barbecue sauce. Roy, superstitious, refused to even discuss the fact that they're on a streak, noting that his parents were happily married for 51 years because they never talked. That is a different way than doing things than I do, but good for them. Uh, Higgins, meanwhile, enjoys a drink and an accidental DJ Khalid impression. And, and another one. <laughs> Even I knew that. Uh, Ted goes to talk to the press. It's a big one. Uh, which, you know, the same thing the lady in the American office would have said. But, uh, or not. Because Roy wants to show Rebecca that he can. Roy goes in to do the presser. And, mate, I'm curious of your thoughts. I absolutely loved Roy's story. I loved where it landed. I loved its sentiment behind it. And I thought he sells it perfectly. What did you think? Same, same. I thought they were, for me, I mean, you, I mean, the, the disrespect of the moment of Ted in the locker room from you is just astonishing to me, but like, just worst moment for the character. I can't fucking, ever walk couldn't, back. You clearly it's thought it. Just, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm almost in tears right now. Clearly hated it. I, for me, this episode will boil down to, it's the Colin coming out episode and it's an episode with two wonderful speeches. One about not turning a blind eye, head in the sand to people's lived experience. And another sure. about you never know what people are going through. And we need to keep that in mind when we gauge people's behavior and reactions to things. And I, I thought both of those points were absolutely perfect. I love both the speeches. I thought they came from wonderful sources. I think Ted's a great message for the first one. Roy's a wonderful message for the second one, considering 
how he often reacts to things. I mean, you often see Roy fucking, I mean, some of this is his own medicine, right? Like Mm -hmm. you see Roy fucking explode sometimes because he's clearly worried about something else. That's why when he had that conversation with Colin where he said, I don't know what you were upset about, but I know it wasn't the thing. It's something else. Roy knows that because he, that's how he lives. Like how he processes things. That's so common for him. And so this was, this was great. This was great. I love the coming full circle with Rebecca where he's doing his job for her. Right. Mm-hmm. And I also love the, the moment. growth as a character. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not, I support Keely being single the rest of this time. Mm-hmm. I think she's just been put through the ringer with relationships. If you're going to put her with somebody, I'd prefer it be Jamie, but her reaction to what Roy was saying was also really good where she was noticing that Roy was, she's in a unique position to be able to, track Roy's growth because she's seen him up close and intimately, right? Like his, his and, and I mean that like emotionally. So she was able to really track his growth. So yeah, it worked for me all the way around. I mean, to do the last part of his speech, because like the last parts are selling the point. Look, I get that some people think that if they buy a ticket, they got the right to yell whatever abusive shit they want at footballers, but they're not just footballers. They're also people. And none of us know what is going on in each other's lives. So for Isaac to do what he did today, even though it was wrong, and I like he doesn't condone it at any point in the speech, uh, I give him my love. And as for why he did what he did, that's none of my fucking business. Next question. Also from a comedic standpoint, also from a comedic standpoint, yeah, his nicknames for the journalists are just funny. Uh, five o'clock Shadowhead, New Trent, Goblin King. We don't we get to see who that is. I like that. But I, it's a great moment for Roy. I wish we've gotten more Roy moments this whole season. And I think it, it sells a certain element of character growth for him before he's actually assuming a mantle of responsibility in a way he's been previously avoiding. Possibly since he gave up role as team captain, really. I also think he did Roy, uh, Isaac a, a big favor here because mm-hmm. he danced around it. He didn't talk to it super directly. But he established in this speech, guys, there's more going on here than you realize. And so please don't write about this, judge it, tweet about this, whatever on face value. There's something else going on here. And I would think coming from Roy, there's some levity to that, right? There's some, or not levity. There's some, um, people are going to take that seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's some there, there. Yeah. It's very, it's a very serious message coming from Roy. If Roy says that you can, you can believe it. Right. So he, he certainly helped Isaac out as well. Yeah, this guy wouldn't bullshit us. If he's saying there's something going on, there's something serious, let's treat this with a certain there's measure a of respect. backbone to it, for sure. Yeah. We, also, he, it's Roy. He may credible. hunt He may hunt us down and kill us if we say if we say anything untoward. Credibility. That's the word I was going for. Credibility, Credibility. and threat of murder. It's what carries you through life. Goblin King, go. Uh, Nate, meanwhile, has arrived at Jade's house, our flat, and rather than stay for the guy's night, they instead share a long hug. Nothing else need be expressed. The sentiment is conveyed. Meanwhile... Wrap up the episode. Uh, Isaac shows up at Colin's very modern house uh, to finally have the conversation that he's been avoiding all episode. Of where, effectively, as he said, and we kind of already discussed, he was resentful, he was hurt, that Colin had never trusted him enough to tell. Be it as a friend, be it as a team captain, hard to say for sure, but that is at least where he was coming from throughout the episode. Uh, Colin just swears and then if I was 99% sure you support me, I'd still 1% sure you wouldn't. And I wasn't going to take that risk. And that's his right to make that call. Isaac doesn't belabor the point on that. It seems more like he's just wanting to express where he was coming from rather than like seek an apology for anything else about what it was, which thank God on that. 
they instead share that moment. Colin invites him in, though, just so they can spend some time, have a bit of a friend moment. They get into the, that. I was a little bit uncomfortable with this, where they get into that little bit of, oh, you are now this label. I shall now ask you lots of questions about this label, which is very typical, but it was still was a little bit uncomfortable for me that they square the end of the episode with Isaac spending all this time asking Colin questions about being gay. Maybe they already had the conversation off camera that Colin was comfortable having that conversation. Seems like he is, but sure. Well, I agree. They were they were falling back on some some sort of stereotypical questions, but I also think that like what maybe what they were trying to establish. Just, I'm gonna try to give them the pin for the doubt here. Is that they were willing to actually get in the muck and talk openly and honestly about their reservations, their concerns, their thoughts about this thing that they've that Isaac has learned about Colin. And there's, they're willing to have an honest conversation. And that's the difference between we don't care. I don't care that you're different. I, I, it doesn't bother me. Like, I, 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 we, I don't even think about it. I don't even think about you that way. I don't notice it. Like, that and what they're portraying, which is, yes, you are different in this way. You've talked about it. We, we all acknowledge it. And now we're going to have an open and honest conversation about it. Here's something, here's something that bugs me in the sports world. Mm. Okay. The Phoenix – all right. In, it, let's say – let's compare this – to what I know, which is which is in America, the NBA, right? Professional Sports League. Yes. The Phoenix Suns were the last team to be sold in the NBA. They were sold for $6 billion. How long ago was that? Like a few months ago. Literally okay. just like six months ago. $6 billion, Spencer. That's a number. How about this? How about we build individual showers for these guys? They, <laughs> we don't need to have group showers anymore. You're worth $6 billion as a sports franchise. How about you remove the fucking dynamic from the table? We, we, we had private stalls in the freaking dorms back in college. It's not much. Remove the dynamic. No more group showers. Everybody gets individual stalls. Build a, ba- build a bathroom facility with 30, 40 individual stalls. Let everybody shower individually and get rid of the fucking dynamic. It's a very simple fix. Uh, two th- uh, two things I think that just made this inter- inter- uh, this interaction not work for me quite as well is that a I think it would have worked better or at least more effectively if there had been some element of discomfort driving Isaac uh, that would have expressed previously or gone through in terms of why he was been standoffish with Colin but they're not framing it as that being really the reason um, and also just two it comes in the heels of Colin saying very specifically to Trent that he didn't want to be a spokesperson he didn't want to be out there it's you know representing in that particular way but he's effectively ending the episode of where he came out having to you know serve kind of that role for isaac here i i I see the line you're drawing i do think that the show would probably tell you the distinction is being a public spokesperson versus talking to your friend about it but i I get what you're saying but they still end on a nice moment they're still able to express that they care for each other It, it caps up that element well and the episode ends caps up you know what cap you're, cap, you're, caps off cap cap has a different meaning nowadays we have to be careful with that word what what, what does cap mean cap, mean, cap means lie like it's a lie when did that start i i've had like you know nine and ten year olds saying that's cap now that's it's cap like, it means it's bullshit yeah or no cap which means no bullshit yeah i don't know it happened internet started it a couple of years ago so it's just something to keep in mind for, the, for our younger listeners um mental note all right Wonderful job in the recap, as always, Spencer. Thank you very much for taking the heavy lifting on the episode. I am Airport. ready. I will say this. I am ready for the Sports Center Top 10. All right. Uh, Sports Center Top 10 is where we talk about 10 things that caught our eye about the episode we think deserve more discussion. Not 9, not 11, not 8, not 12. Spencer, you want to get us going? 
Uh, shall we jointly talk about the malice at the palace, given our prior references to it? Uh, yeah, I can talk. So if you want to, if you have notes on it, give it. I, and then I, I can actually share a personal story about the malice at the palace. Okay. Malice at the palace is the trade line description for an event that happened in a game of the Indiana Pacers versus the Detroit Pistons at the, at the palace in Auburn Hills, Michigan on November 19th, 2004. A fight broke out after Pistons center Ben Wallace was fouled by Pacers small forward Ron Artest, leading Wallace to double arm shove Artest in the face. There was a bit of there was a bit of a fight on the on the uh, court. Things were able to break up though. Ron Artest kind of went over, I think, to the announcers table to lay. He him laid to down sit on down. the announcers table, which, by the way, it, Ron has always now his name is Meta World Peace has always portrayed this as, look at me, I was being the nice guy. I watched this live. He was being a smartass by laying down on the table. Well, he, if I remember correctly, he actually put on like a, a microphone so that he actually could like do a live interview on the he subject of it. He was being a jackass, yes. To, to which both of the announcers there just put him on mute immediately knowing it would be nonstop shit given what they do about run our test. Uh, while this is happening though, a fan, I believe named John Green, threw a drink, a cup full of, I believe, Diet Coke at Beer. run our test Wikipedia said Diet Coke, so yeah, maybe it was, it was investigated it was, later. It, not. Uh, it hit Ron Artest in the chest, to which his immediate response was to charge into the stands to confront that fan. Uh, the Pacers radio broadcaster Mark Boyle tried to stop him, to which Ron Artest pushed him over and trampled him a little bit, which led to him fracturing five vertebrae and gouging his head in the process. Dear Christ. Uh, Artest gets into the stands and immediately confronts the wrong fan, which is made only only worse when several other Pacers players then follow him into the stands. Captain Jack. Him, getting into what amounts to a full-on brawl with the Pistons fans that are there, rapidly escalating into a melee that spills onto the court with players, with fans, with the what, only like three police officers that were there desperately going at each other. Somehow things rapidly spiraling out of control. A massive police... Uh, uh, police intervention occurs essentially to you know protect the Pacers from being eaten alive by the increasingly unruly Pistons fans. The refs can't let the game go forward. It stopped Pistons' victory, and um, a, but it's a truly massive police escort has to escort not only out of the stadium but getting in their cars and getting the hell away. After everyone calmed down, um, our test apparently actually asked fellow player Jackson, "Jack, you think we're going to get in trouble?" To which Jackson replied, "Are you serious, bro? Trouble?" Ron will be lucky if we have a freaking job. Ultimately, nine players were suspended for a collective total of 146 games, losing $11 million in salary, with our test getting the most, uh, with, a, with a suspension for the remainder of the season, 86 games, and losing about $5 million in salary, with a year's probation, 60 hours community service, and anger management therapy also occurring in the parallel criminal assault cases that were being brought against, I believe, five players. Five fans were also charged and banned for life from attending Pistons home games in the future. Sir, what was your personal story involving the malice at the palace? Well, I'm a big NBA fan, and uh, I um, <clears throat> I was home for a year from college, so I, I didn't gra- like I, I was in the I was a year ahead of you. Yes, you were. I graduated at the same time as you because I took a year off in the middle, so I was at home with my mom. Uh, living with my mom and I had gone out for the evening and I came back and I was going to turn this game on because the Indiana Pacers were ascendant. They were, they were on the rise. They were not unlike our AFC Richmond team. They were playing very well. They had a, a nice young 
core nucleus of Ron Artest, Stephen Jackson, and Jermaine O'Neal playing very well. They were playing the, the Pistons, who were the big dogs in the league, the big dogs at the time. Mm-hmm. And I turned the game on right as um, the foul shots were occurring. We we're about to start uh, after the foul. So they were all lining up for the foul shots, and this is right before the push. So I... I by fucking kismet, I turned this thing on 10 seconds. What before a moment all to join. And it started breaking. All hell started breaking loose. I started calling everyone I know. I was calling. I called our buddy Levi, which you know. Mm-hmm. I called my buddy Justin. I was calling all kinds of people. Like, you have got to turn on the television. Something crazy is happening. So the the, fan, the guy you, you referenced who Ron Artest was talking to is named Steven Jackson. Steven Jackson is very much a I got your back bro guy. He jumped into the, to the audience as well. I'll tell you what I remember. And the NBA has scrubbed the footage. You can't find the footage anywhere except on documentaries. Mm -hmm. I remember watching this. All hell was breaking loose. And I remember specifically a video shot where they were were showing a person, a fan, on the court. Who was walking around. And out from the right came Jermaine O'Neal, who had a haymaker he was going to throw. I mean, he was pulling this from his back pocket. Jermaine O'Neal is a seven-foot fucking 300 He might have killed that fan. And he slipped on some liquid on the court right before the blow landed and the blow just glanced the guy as Jermaine O'Neal fell on his back and I thought somebody's going to die during this like that that guy it with the way he was swinging at that fan it would have killed him uh Ron Artest's career was never the same he he before this he was probably a top maybe 15 to 20 player in the league he was never considered that again he sat out the entire rest of the season completely blew up the pistons season the pistons never went on to win a championship with that core um they ended up disbanding the team a couple years later selling it for parts and it changed the nba because it 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 changed how the nba treats player fan interactions for the longest time, the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was very common for players to jaw with fans. Right. Um, Michael Jordan famously would do this with the people who were sitting courtside. He would just jaw with them back and forth, and he would get mad at fans. If a fan was saying something he didn't like, he'd say, watch this, and he'd go out and score a bunch of points and come back and tell them, fuck your mother and every other nasty thing he could think of because he's Michael Jordan. Part of Jordan. the experience. Because that's Michael Jordan. Now, if a fan gets into it with a player, they will remove the fan regardless of what happened in the interaction. And there have been some fans removed for some really not bad, like, like some super minus, minuscule shit because they are so hyper aware of this. And it, I think it fundamentally changed the sporting experience in America because the level of security, the level of separation between players, what they'll allow from the fans as far as feedback about the game and interactions with players, all of that changed across all major sporting events in America based on this event. So it was a huge event, and I'm, I'm not surprised that they were hearkening back to it with the plot. But that's my personal experience is that I literally turned the television on 10 seconds before it started and lost my fucking mind. And I, I wasn't even an NBA fan. It was everything the news could talk about for like three weeks. It was sure. all and all the time. I mean, but, it basically yeah. was a riot. Like, I mean, there were there yeah. were people in the stands like fighting that we don't even like that. Like, you have to dig really deep into the story of fans that were just in the in the stands fighting during all this because of all hell, how everything nuts. broke. There's fucking Lord of the Flies there in Auburn Hills. Uh, so, uh, uh, in terms of next things on Sports Center top ten, uh, I was kind of curious about the eight game record to see where that compared in terms of Premier League statistics. So I looked up what was the longest winning streak in Premier League history. And that is 18 games. I said by Man City in 2017 and then Liverpool in 2019 through 2020. Though notably, Liverpool actually won 17, then drew a game, then won 18. 
That was their season. Dear Christ. So they technically went 36 games undefeated, but with the draw in the middle breaking their streak. Damn. So the episode is named for a musical named La Cage of Foie. Ah, yes. <clears throat> it's a musical with uh, by Jerry Herman, and it's based on the 1973 French. So the musical is a movie that was made, but there was also a stage play mm-hmm. of the same name that was based. It was uh, written in 1973. And it's the story of a gay couple, the manager of a nightclub. And his romantic partner, who's the star attraction at this nightclub, and their follies and interactions being gay in this society, maybe 60 years ago, and their interactions with an ultra conservative politician. And it sort of still tells the story of the coming out story, and then also the dynamics they have to deal with with this person, this ultra conservative politician who really um, is trying to marginalize them, take away their rights, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why that's what this whole whole episode is named for. And I've never actually seen the original on stage or on, on film. The Birdcage, though, is a great film in terms of a, a more modern remake of it. Yeah, for sure. Birdcage, shout out. Uh, Eric Clapton. We get a <laughs> reference to this episode, not by name, but just by the guy from Cream. Uh, was born in 1945. He's an English rock and blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter who is, I would say, regularly near everyone's list of top classic rock guitarists. Uh, he's been with a lot of bands, most famously Cream, also the Yardbirds. Uh, during his time, he's won 18 Grammys and just solo sold more than 280 million records. Uh, he's also a three-time inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame solo for the Yardbirds and for Cream. Uh, he's incredibly influential to rock music and guitar playing, particularly in what some would refer to as helping create the cult of the lead guitarist associated with rock bands. In terms of key songs that he was on or wrote or sang, uh, White Room, Layla, Wonderful Tonight, Cocaine, Change the World are all absolutely incredible songs I'd love to sing along with all the damn time. And in terms of songs that can successfully make me very, very misty, Tears in Heaven is a hell of a track. All right, so um, let's stay in that vein. Uh, Jimmy Page, obviously, is the guitarist for Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Found Joe, cover. Joe Walsh was the guitarist for a lot of successful rock bands, uh, James Gang, the Ingles, and Ringo Starr, and his all-star band, so the, the, the band that Ringo Starr made after the Beatles disbanded. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you here. Let's, 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 get, let's get into this, Spencer. Who is your favorite classic rock guitarist? I would say that the... the they they did good writing here because this con- the concept that Joe Walsh is better than J- than Jimmy Page would like controversial would really freak people out. That's a that's a hot fucking blazing hot take there from Coach Beard. How about you? Favorite classic rock guitarist? I mean, Joe Walsh has had you know he's solo. You know, life's life's been good is just a really funny damn song. Uh, Rocky Mountain Way is catchy as all hell, and then you know for the Eagles. Take It Easy, Hotel California, Lion Eyes. These are all great-ass songs. Life in the Fast Land, I think Joe Walsh also helped write for the Eagles as well. And Peaceful Easy Feeling is just is just one of my favorite songs ever. Um, but no, he's not at the top ten, I don't think. I mean, I, don't, I just don't think he is. I think he's been involved in some great songs. The Eagles are an absolutely great band, but I, I don't put Joe Walsh up there. Uh, I mean, I think Eric Clapton or Jimmy Page, any of my other characters, are very strong choices. I wouldn't leave Keith Richards out of the discussion, you know. 
the, the riff from Satisfaction beats in my damn soul. Uh, if you want to go even farther back, I think Chuck Berry should deserve a lot of credit for just pioneering just guitar work in terms of classic rock. And uh, one I mentioned, but I, I asked my parents this, my dad wanted to remind me that Stevie Ray Vaughan existed, and yeah, uh, let's go and listen to Pride and Joy and tell me that guy is not all ta- not talented as all shit. So a few a few from me. Yeah, but you didn't answer. Who who is your favorite? Ah, uh, I think Eric Clapton. I think probably deserves it. I think he just had so many great songs, and he has so much of a diverse range, and he's such an accom- he's such an accomplished musician with just so many wonderful tracks and different genres. I think I, I think he rightfully deserves be at the top of the list. All right, I'll answer the question in a way that Spencer's are just refusing to do. I'm trying, man. You, this you, is best I can. Yeah, but you're saying who you think deserves number one, not who your personal favorite is. That's what that's what the people want to know. I'll tell you my personal favorite. My personal favorite is Prince. Prince on the guitar. Interesting. I wouldn't put him in classic rock, dis- but just as a guitarist, he's quite skilled. Well, he he would play classic rock. Like at his at his uh, concerts, it was very common for him to do covers of all kinds of songs and play classic rock. There's a big classic rock influence in a lot of Prince's music. Prince's music really ran the gamut. I mean, there's some stuff that is like sounds like just straight up '80s pop music. There's some stuff that is like hard R and B. Uh, and then there's other stuff that really does sound like classic rock, like it's something that like maybe Tom Petty would have written. I I would say he's my favorite guitarist of all time. Anytime Prince would grab a guitarist or grab a guitar and roll, it was the best. I mean, he gave me the great single greatest guitar moment of all time in my life, which is at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, very famously when they were all playing my guitar gently weeps, and um, it was like uh, just a fucking who's who of people on the stage, including Tom Petty and some others, and Prince absolutely took the show over uh did about a four minute solo on his own and ended the ended the segment by throwing his guitar in the air his guitar fell off view so it looked like his guitar was thrown up in the air and just vanished and prince just walked off with everybody else not knowing what to do so prince is my favorite he was a showman i would say that like if you're talking technically who is the guy who who probably changed the most about how good the guitarist plays probably stevie ray vaughn um, who should get a lot of credit? Chuck Berry. Interesting, Chuck you. Berry. For you. here's a Chuck Berry story for you. I um, was working uh, with an organization that was a very, very large organization who was trying to get a musician to play for their company retreat. Very, mm-hmm. very large, and they tried to get Chuck Berry. Here was here's how you, here's how you could get Chuck Berry. How old years. is Chuck Berry now? Well, he's dead now, but it was like 20 years ago. This okay. happened. He would show up, he needed to be paid in advance, in cash, and he did not bring a amplifier, which is just <laughs> fucking strange <laughs> what? for a guitarist. Like, guitarists always would want to control the sound. They always bring It's kind of minimum. He literally would bring a guitar. He didn't even have a cord to plug in. You needed to, bring, you needed to give him the cord, you needed to give him the amp, and you needed to pay him cash. In advance, and then you could get Chuck Berry. That's how he rolled. Also, he doesn't have pants. Please bring him pants. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yes. I'm sure he probably required a hotel room. Paid in, paid in advance. He was he is a strange cat, but that was a, that was an interesting story. Um, okay, so the last one I well, have. Oh, you have one? one last thing on that point. It was kind of fun to look up quotes by some of these guitarists about each other. Uh, it's notable Eric Clapton apparently is very fond of Joe Walsh and noted back in the day. He's one of the best guitarists to surface in some time. I don't listen to many records, but I listen to his. So comment from Eric Clapton about Joe Walsh. Oh, wow. Also, uh, um, the Queen's Brian May, also very skilled guitarist, commented on Jimmy Page, 
I don't think anyone has epitomized riff writing better than Jimmy Page. He's one of the great brains of rock music. Oh, how about that? What else are good quotes there, Pants? Good job. I appreciate you doing that. Um, okay, here you go. Here's my last one. Obviously, we land on 10 every week, which we normally do. Sports Center Top 10 is the Irish Goodbye. That's a reference that was made in the show. So I was looking. I do this. I wanted to. Yeah, you you certainly do. Irish goodbye colloquially now is known as just like when you just leave without saying goodbye to anybody. You just bolt from a party, from a social gathering. You just get up and leave. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to figure out why is it called the Irish goodbye, and it appears that this action of leaving without saying a proper goodbye is. The naming of this, metaphorically speaking, is basically Western European countries just doing the finger pointing to each other. Just you, 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 you know, like the the sort of Spider-Man meme where they're all pointing back. That's kind of what it is. Because originally it was titled as, it was called French Leave. And this is the English who titled this. They called it the French leave as in he took French leave. This can be tracked all the way back to the mid 18th century. The French. Everybody's rude. It's not me. The French didn't like this. They thought that was absolutely unfair to, to, to call that French leave because, you know, obviously the French are very proper. They, they go by social norms and cues. So then they fired back within their language, calling it filaire à langaise to leave as the English. And so that is what they started calling it to leave as the English. After a period of time, uh, they sort of called a a halt on is this English, is this French, and they started calling it Russian. This was the Russian leave, and then later on, it even became to make a Polish exit. So it's all these all these countries in Europe just sort of pointing fingers at each other, saying, "No, you do it. No, you do it. No, you do it." And then in America, we settled on Irish, and there's apps. I can't find anything on the internet that explains exactly why we did, other than we kind of followed the trajectory. So mid 18th century, we were also calling it the French leave. We called it the British uh, the to, to leave as the English, and then we finally settled on Irish goodbye. They need to pick a smaller country that just can't fight back. Like just, just say it's a, say it's a Liechtenstein goodbye. It's a it's a whale's goodbye. <laughs> there right. you go. There we go. I think that is the sports in our top ten this week. As always, ten on the nose every week. Things that we liked about the episode or thought deserve more discussion. Let's jump into train wreck of the episode. Isaac is the obvious train wreck of the episode, correct? Yes. I mean unquestionably. Fucking disaster. I mean, I think they, they end him on a good point. They have a message to convey through him, but just in terms of just things character is doing, dear Christ, man. I mean I your heart was in the right place, but your actions are, un, you know, uncondonable. Uh, and they're, as said, they better be addressed in the next couple episodes. And I think it could set up an interesting moment if they do. I think they're going to take the captain's bar armband away from him and give it to Jamie. That's my prediction. We'll see. It's all right. At least for the time being, Sam's the one that's wearing it. All right. So life lessons with Ted. We kind of covered this before, but I think that the two primary life lessons that we can pull from this is one, when someone is has something about them that is different than the quote norm, right? Um, when they have something different about them that is uh, different than the quote norm, and that difference has an impact on their life, right? That that difference causes them to be marginalized, causes them to be oppressed, causes them to be mistreated, or even just considered different in society, right? 
I don't think it's enough if you want to be supportive and you want to help correct societal wrongs to just say, okay, well, I don't care, right? I, I don't see that. I don't, I don't see race. I don't, I don't see homosexuality. I don't care about mm-hmm. that stuff. That's not enough. That can be enough if we ever pull society to the point that that person isn't treated differently, doesn't have social harms or ills come to them for being different. If they actually aren't treated differently, right, for that thing, then, yeah, you can ignore it. But if they are, then you, by saying, I don't care, I don't see this, you're ignoring their lived experience, right? And that almost continues to perpetuate this concept that, uh, they should just be quiet about it, that it's not a big deal. It's it's no big deal, right? It can actually be really harmful to tell people like, oh, well, I, we're sort of post whatever. You hear this a lot mm-hmm. in America where people will say, well, we're post race. I don't care about race. Like racism is over. And when you say that, <laughs> it's you, turning dismiss, a blind eye to problems. you dismiss people's lived experience and you perpetuate the embedded racism that exists in America, right? So you like, I think it's really, really important, I can't overstate it, to acknowledge people's differences, care about their differences, and kind of get in the trench with them and say, hey, like, I, I want to hear about what, how, how this is affecting your life. And I think it's something that we should talk about openly and you shouldn't be scared to mention because clearly being gay in Western society has implications on your life. Some people will treat you differently for that. Being, being a minority, being of a different nationality, being of a different religion. All of these things has an impact on people's lives and we shouldn't ignore that impact because you can't correct a problem until you face up to the fact that it exists. So I think that's a really important message. And then the second one, I think is a very fairly straightforward message, but is wonderfully put by Roy. And it actually is something that your two co-hosts on this podcast agree with, that Roy did a great job of that. And it is that you never know what someone's going through. So if you see someone being different, being strange, acting out, having a moment, maybe pull back on judgment for that and recognize that you don't know what they're going through at that specific time. You don't know what they're going through. And so that's a, that's a great lesson. Anytime you're interacting with somebody who seems to be having a bad day. Yeah, I fully agree. I think there's wonderful points. I think we both can agree that you'd be better off not conveying those by means of Denver Broncos stories. Glad we're on the same page on that. The fuck are Denver Broncos? <laughs> Shout out Jamie. He's the best. Okay. There we go. I think we're at the end of this episode. Spencer, anything else you'd like to say about the episode as we go into the final three, the home stretch? No, I think it was a heartfelt episode. I think it wrapped up a few plot lines. And I think it's one of the episodes that's emphasizing where they're really going to wrap up this season. I think I think it was notable how little direct role Ted had this episode. That most of the episode he's in the background, he's even optioning out of doing various coaching things. He really only appears for a couple minutes, and the show is instead grounded in other characters and their arcs and their story. And I think that's setting up the idea that Ted is certainly leaving this season. Ted's going back home or going elsewhere. He's not going to be the coach of Richmond anymore going forward. But it seems to be emphasizing the show is trying to keep its options open about what a future could be for both the other characters and potentially for the show itself. Yeah, I think they're going to lose Jason Sudeikis. He's going to go back to Kansas. And then we'll end up having the show continue. They may not call it Ted Lasso, but it'll be something else. Where Hannah Waddingham, Nick Muhammad... Brett Goldstein, all of these other characters, the non-Ted characters will continue and we'll be doing doing the show. And we will, if if that happens, we will likely cover the spinoff here on this podcast feed and that will be a lot of fun. So I think we're we're on board with what we think will happen the rest of the season. I also do, the one thing I'll throw in as far as a prediction, 
is I also think that we will get a Jamie Keeley uh, moment where they, Reconciliation. they reunite and they date again. And I think, I think that's been in the tea leaves for quite some time now. And that will be interesting to see in terms of how they then portray Roy processing that. Uh, will, will we take it with the same grace that Jamie did their relationship or will there be a further moment that we'll need to see some Roy character growth? Yeah, completely agree. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to us. And thank you, Spencer, for doing the podcast during probably not a great time for you. Podcast professional that you are. Thank you very much for doing the podcast and the recap today. I look forward to covering the last three episodes of Ted Lasso season three with you as we go into the home stretch. Could be the end of Ted Lasso as we know it. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Hope you all have a great week.